Armaments, chapter 2, verses 9 to 21. And Saint Attila raised the hand grenade up on high, saying, O Lord, bless this thy hand grenade, that with it thou mayst blow thine enemies to tiny bits in thy mercy. And the Lord did grin, and the people did feast upon the lambs and sloths and carp and anchovies and orangutans and breakfast cereals and fruit bats and large... Skip a bit, brother. And the Lord spake, saying, First shalt thou take out the holy pin, then shalt thou count to three, no more, no less. Three shall be the number thou shalt count, and the number of the counting shall be three. Four shalt thou not count, neither count thou two, excepting that thou then proceed to three. Five is right out. Once the number three, being the third number, be reached, then lobbest thou thy holy hand grenade of Antioch towards thy foe, who, being not in my sight, shall snuff it. Amen. Amen. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and we're blasting off to episode 18. What the fuck? Blast off! Ah, your audio just cracked, you psycho son of a bitch. It's all over the place on my thing. Oh, man. Mario, do you you have any news from this week? (laughs) Well, the crazy news that happened this week is um, there was... Recently... Possibly weeks ago, a trailer for Tremor Seven. What it did? Yeah, you know, we got some more Bert, some some good old uh, Michael Gross mm. on an island facing off against Tremors. How much do you think he Raboids? makes per Tremors movie now? I think I think he has to have like a downside now. Probably. I mean, I'm sure he makes like some money, but I'm sure most of it just comes from like the DVD sales just go right to him. The studio doesn't even... Yeah, because he sells, just, he sells them out of his car. <laughs> yeah. So he just puts the cash in his pocket. Um, and, you know, what day is it? Uh, it's Wednesday. The, the, what day is it in the future? Oh. It's the 19th? Oh, boy. So I guess uh, the devil all the time. That, that, that got was, reviews. That was good. That was yeah, a movie. That was a thing that happened. Right? Like, it was either great or bad. Tom Holland was either really good in that performance or really... Inappropriately cast. Uh, uh, we can say this with courage. Uh, I, I say this. Uh, Jason Clark was pretty mediocre. Jason Clark was probably terrible. <laughs> that act, that cast actually scares the shit out of me. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> just, if there's one thing, the piece of the news we have for this week is, is Jason Clark was awful in that film. Mario, let me tell you about awful. Okay, one day I went to a I went to visit my cousin who's lived in Cold Spring, New York, the state which, of Florida. No, I did I did do that, and that was weird. Um, I don't think you have any Florida listeners, though. So. I don't. I haven't noticed, um, but they know they're weird. They if you live in know. Florida, just get out of Florida. I went to a bar and they uh, there was a tap takeover from this new brewery called Sloop, and they are out of oh, where are they out of? I keep forgetting. 
I always out forget of, this. Out of a dub. I'm going to find it Somewhere first. in New York. We're going to find it first. Uh, Hopewell Hope Junction. Hopewell Junction, New York. Oh, we, did we find it together? Ooh. Friends. <laughs> COVID um, high five. COVID high five, yeah. Except we actually touched it. It's like awkward. You don't know midway through. You don't know if you're supposed we just, to we connect. Went through it, we went through it. So we went to this bar, and they were having a tap takeover. What was the bar? I don't remember what it's called, but it was awesome because it's like it's right. It's like attached Delaney's? to the train station. No, it's in, it's in Cold Spring, New York. Oh, I don't know what that place. So is. it's like a hipster. It's like a hipster haven. And the bar was really cool. Sloop, which was a new brewery at the time, was doing a tap takeover. They had four beers there. Two of them were pretty good. Two of them were fucking disgusting. And the guy, like the brew guy, was like sitting with us, and he was like chatting us up. He's like, "What do you think?" And I was like, "This is undrinkable. This is fucking garbage." Mm. But they did have a couple of good things. Wait, been... wait, 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 wait. Get just in there. How, how do you respond to that? Oh, he was fine with it because they were just testing stuff out. Oh, okay, cool. And they gave us some. They gave us some some merch. They gave us a kakuzi. Um, so it wasn't like he wasn't like. No, he bought like he bought star, us a beer. This like, isn't my star. Like no, no, they were just trying stuff out because they were new. And one of the things I've been saving, I've been saving. Sloop is huge now. I know Sloop is gigantic, and I've been kind of saving them, uh, specifically this one. Because it's just kind of become a ubiquitous beer in the area. And my cousin still lives near Hopewell Junction. Like, it's still, like, it feels local to me. Sloop, I'll always be attached to Sloop for that reason. Um, so I'm springing it on us. This is the this is the Juice Bomb. It's an IPA. It is... It's good on tap. I know that. Northeastern. It is good on tap. I have not had it in a can yet, so... Is this a six-packer or a four-packer? It's a six-packer. Good. How much does this cost? It was it feels like thirteen ninety nine. It feels like it's so often that you know you should get this. Like it should be a, a good price. That's yeah, thirteen ninety nine is a good price. Yeah, first last week's beer, which is gone because it's long drinking and not not clacking in my hands right now. Clacking wetly in your hands. <laughs> um, was eleven ninety nine. Oh, that's, that's we didn't go this week. Yeah, yeah. price. Yeah, yeah. All right. Oh, I love the juice bomb smell. It retains that sm- that fragrance gotten, of the juice bomb, I mean, which is vegetal. Now, I usually hate vegetal beers, but then it's, like, juicy. But I think a yeah. mix of vegetal... I haven't tasted it yet. Mm-hmm. I think the mix of um, a grapefruit flavor, which this has... Mm-hmm. Don't do that. That's insane. I just want to get rid of it. <laughs> grapefruit flavor, and I'm somehow finding the beer, the ghost beer from last week, um, mixed <laughs> with, like, a, a vegetal nose mm-hmm. is, is doing things. Mm. It's like It's like... The rind of that grapefruit is the nose, but then the actual meat is stuffed in your mouth. <laughs> well, we talked about uh, grassy Nine beers a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> we talked about grassy beers a couple of weeks ago. Vegetal to you might mean just grassy to me because this does well, have the term. The term the ter- oh, grassy is, it... is, is vegetal. I like grassy. Why fucking the, Philistine? Why not grassy? I like grassy. Is this weird starting an epi- like a double episode and not us being shit faced in the second episode? What's, what happens when you drink a four point five percent watermelon beer? beer yeah. that tastes like a seltzer. But like um, usually, like we're decently buzzed by this point. We're like, doing uh, Mario. We're doing good. Yeah, we're doing. We're, we're professionals. Are we, are we adults? Mate, I hope not. Ugh. I hope not. Ugh. I feel like every time I look at my kids, I have to question that. But but yeah. yeah so so I like this. Sorry, it's good. I it's the, good. Oh, that's. It's a good beer. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm happy to introduce it to the podcast. They had another one called Conf- Confrontation, but it was a sour. And the beer that I had that 
of theirs that was undrinkable was a sour. So I'm assuming they worked out the kinks. I was hesitant, though. What was the other one you liked? I don't remember. I was drunk. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, but this was the, the other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, for sure. We were hammered. We walked back to his back to his apartment. Cold Spring is like that. To get into a car. Have you ever been drive. to Cold Spring? No, I, I waited. No, I think I'm you know what we watched? we watched. I don't know what the fuck Cold Spring is. So Cold Spring is a town in New York that I'm is. I'm not it's, exactly it's hipster, sure. I know what New York is. It is a hipster enclave. There's a general store across the street from my, where my cousin used to live. Where it's is sold. this in in proportion to Syracuse? Oh, it's much closer to here than Syracuse. It's about an hour and twenty minutes away from here. It's right on the Hudson. Where is it in proportion to Sleepy Hollow? I don't know. Because I don't know exactly where Terrytown is. How close is that shit city to it? Terrytown? Terryville. Terryville? major shit city in the south of New York. That's it's, right, New York it's City. Like a th- you fucking suck. 30-minute train ride? Okay. I think. So that means it's like five miles. There's a Metro North stop right on Cold Spring. Not obviously from New Haven. So it's just a hipster enclave? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, buddy. Bunch of hipsters. So it's like the Williamsburg of the north? But it's nice. It's like right... It's oh, it's, oh, you know where it is? It's right near West Point. West Point is right there. Like the army place? Yeah. That's in New York? Yeah. I hate that state. I don't know if I've ever talked about this. In the, I have talked about how much I hate New York City. I don't I don't get it. I don't get the New York thing. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's probably ruining my political career if I ever want one. Was that something you were interested in? I don't know. I was. No. We, well, we <laughs> I'm just not going to run for politics in New York. Is there any way to link this conversation to the conversation we need to have right now? You know what I also hate doing? Talking to ladies. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Do you know who hates talking to ladies? Jake. He in does. The new Charlie Kaufman film based on Ian Reed's, Ian Reed's, Anne Rand's, um... Anne Rands. Anne Rands, I'm thinking of anything. <laughs> Excuse me? You don't have to go. I don't have to go where? Forward. People like to think of themselves as points moving through time. But I think it's the opposite. We're stationary. And time passes through us. <laughs> Blowing like cold wind. Maybe this is how it was always going to end. She has such a pretty voice. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Even though she's doing an accent. But she's Irish, so... She's doing like 17 accents. The suppression of her Irish accent in her normal accent here sounds... So perfectly like Midwestern, yeah. upper Midwestern, um, and then she slips into like that transatlanticism so well. Right, it's she's just doing Pauline Kael. Oh, it's so good. Are we recording all this? That'd be great. Yeah, if yeah, we're yeah. just recording. We are. We're just reviewing this movie already. Uh, the actress's nice voice in question is Jesse Buckley playing a young woman, maybe named Lucy, maybe named Yvonne, maybe named whatever a thousand names it possibly could be, and she's on a trip with her new boyfriend Jake. They've been dating for only six, maybe seven weeks. Maybe it's been forever. Maybe it's always been. Maybe it hasn't been. But they're going to see Jake's parents. Uh, But the little twist is she's thinking of of ending things. She's pretty sure she's going to end things. But it's a little morbid curiosity to meet Jake's parents. 
Well, she likes Jake. She likes Jake, and she doesn't want to end it, but it just feels like there's no future. Mm. It's like it's like my life. Um, <laughs> you jumped right in. And, you know, during their trip, things seem a bit odd. You know, she, this, this young woman switches majors several times. She, she might, could do everything. Yeah. She doesn't really enjoy poetry. She finds it doesn't enjoy the metaphysics. And then eventually, you know, she's saying a poem that's her own that's not really necessarily her own. It's an EVHD poem. That's okay. But it's her poem, you know. And but that is fucking killer. Yeah, well, yeah, of course. We'll, we'll, get, we'll, get, we'll get to we'll it. Get there. We can't we'll review get. this during the description. Okay, go ahead. Eventually, you know, um, they, you know, we, we sense that there's a little oddness and we get to the parents' house and, well, that oddness gets turned up to 10,000. <laughs> Compared to what it does in the book. In the book, it's just a little awkward. Mm. And in the film, we go through uh, Mother, basically. It is Mother at the parents' house. I, I thought the same fucking thing, man. Yeah. Uh, but in a, not in a derivative way. No, no, absolutely not. It, it works totally. Uh, there is a awkward conversation at the dinner table where, you know, Jake is a little abrasive with his, his parents and his parents... Um, especially his mother and his mm-hmm. parents are a little odd, have a little oddball kinks. And then after dinner, after, you know, they have dessert and eventually disappear. And she goes to Jake's bedroom and she sees a cornucopia of everything that happens in this movie mm-hmm. and everything that's mentioned in this movie. It's one of the great shots for me of the year. One of the um, great pivots in, in, I think, in recent movies too, where it, 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 uh, Solidifies so many of the things that just that you've seen up to this point, and, and also we'll see. right, exactly, and foreshadows so many things to come. Absolutely. Um, and when she goes back downstairs, um, she finds out that she's kind of unstuck in time. Uh, yeah, she goes maybe through, maybe you know it, it feels that way. You know, she's seeing the parents go through various ages of young and old and bedridden and dead and everything that. Dog seems as though it's drowned I love it. I love that and shaking dog, and glitching and eventually just is an urn, but then it's there and it's not there and apologize for the smell and she needs to get the fuck out of there and after some work. period of time, she has to go to work. Big difference from the uh, book. I know. Interesting. Um, it's not really that interesting. I just, I preferred it. Me too. Uh, eventually they, they leave, you know, they, they talk about some John Cassavetes and... <laughs> Jesse Buckley oh, so drops into a Pauline Kael impersonation to give the review of... Um, a woman the, Under the Influence. Yeah, Woman Under the Influence. You know, just fucking railing in Gina Rowland. Uh, they, they get to an ice cream shop where we open in the middle of winter where two of the people are laughing at them and the third uh, the little teenage workers are laughing and the third one warns the young woman that, you know, like she's... Uh, afraid of what's going to happen to her um, and afraid for her and sad for her and this is kind of like the outcast uh, teenage girl and they keep going on their trip but then they decide that they got these two little ice creams these Oreo blizzard type things and they don't they, they're huge sticky fucking yeah. ice creams <laughs> um, so he wants to go throw them away so he goes to this high school this gigantic high school Jake does in the middle of nowhere um, I'm having like fucking sense memory flashbacks mm-hmm. like as you're describing it and uh eventually you know he kind of disappears into the high school 
Uh, then he comes back and they, they kiss. They're about ready to have sex. And then the custodian has been being a creep who's who's there during the off season. And Jake says that he's watching him. He disappears into the school and um, the young woman follows him. And uh, things start to unravel. Eventually, <laughs> you know, she, she reveals that she never... You know, they, they had met at a pub trivia and they had hit it off and talked and she finally meets this old janitor and she tells that janitor, I never even talked to this guy. He was actually just a creep, a weirdo, and was looking at me and making me unsettled. And I was with my girlfriend on our anniversary, but I wish my boyfriend was there. And everything becomes very unstuck because you realize through all of this that you've been interspersing this thing with an old janitor and that old janitor was Jake. Because Jake has just imagined everything. He's imagined this relationship. He's imagined a life. He's imagined this experience with his parents. He's had the sense memory of the past with his parents, of spending years taking care of his parents and never getting out. You know, we hear the the, the, the fragrance of, of, of the fights that happen that get described in the book um, about Jake's inability to escape from his neuroses and, and his... his his, his uh, crazy amount of introversion, um, and then we follow old Jake. Eventually, Oliver Platt has a, a pig with maggots coming down. You know, tries to tell Jake it's not so bad as he strips naked in his car, mm-hmm. and Jake walks into the place, back into the high school, goes into a podium, and delivers John Nash's acceptance speech. For the Nobel Prize, has everyone an old man makeup? You know, previously we had seen Jake as played by an old actor. I don't know who that actor is off the top of my head. Um, I mean, I love that beautiful mind. Who is the old actor? The horrible gray old... Guy Boyd. Um, now we see Jesse Plemings in old man makeup. and But like the audience are... decked out in the horrible, horrible, horrible aged makeup of A Beautiful Mind is fucking hilarious. Exactly. Um, and it leads into his performance of uh, Judd. Oh man, what the hell is the the villain's name in Oklahoma? The villain in Oklahoma, yeah, Judd. Yeah. I, can't I don't remember know. Judd Blyer. Yeah, yeah. Like that. Leads into a performance of of Lonely Room. I think I believe it is. Um, when the movie ends, we see that the car has been his old pickup truck is covered in snow, but we do hear the engine turn over mm. at the end of the credits. So. Um, yeah, this this movie is a fucking masterpiece. This is my... I mean, you won't agree with this, I assume. This is absolutely the best Charlie Kaufman movie I've ever seen. I can't um, agree with that. You know that I can't agree with that. Yeah. But I also think that it is... For me, it's definitely... <laughs> I think it's... You could see how it could hit me. Fuck in, yeah. In oh my god. And I think in a different universe, this movie... I don't know. I don't. Yeah. I I honestly don't know what to say. Um, from top to bottom, uh, this this movie is has moments of of the cleverness and humor of Ant Kind. The Robert Zemeckis little title card that happens that was actually put in there by the editor um, has like an interplay, and then Charlie Kaufman watching it was like, "No, we're keeping that," and got permission from Robert Zemeckis to be like, "Hey, can I actually do this?" And Zemeckis it's was like, so "Of course." Fucking good. Um, it's it's like the most ant kind oh thing ever to happen, um, from you know all the little interspersions of of moments remembered and brought back and 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 unlike 
the book, which I think the book is is good, and we'll we'll talk about the book as well during this review. Um, what comes off less as a twist, and it wasn't Reed's intention to come off as a twist of of you know Jake kind of being your sole narrator, um, is is present throughout this from a very from very early on. Even though I had read the book before, you have the sense that this is none of these people exist but Jake. Um, and speaking of which, every single performance in this is is fucking amazing. Well, I want to, you know, we get Tony Collette once again being able to do like a thousand things at one time. We talked about this last year with Knives Out. Uh, Jesse Buckley's transformative. Um, oh, yeah, it's a hard best actress year for me. Like she's right I mean, there. I don't. I mean, it's not really hard. I, I, it's can, only September. You can see, you yeah, can see yeah, why yeah. for me it's, it's see, a hard I year. I mean, I guess. Um, I but feel like, I think. Yeah. I think okay, probably. I think probably she's better than those other two, than those two, uh, just because there's so much demand and work being done. And Jesse Plemons, um, all at once, is able to be. Oh God, he's he's doing like a Philip Seymour Hoffman here, but. It, it's it's completely different, and there's a real young brokenness to this. Whereas, mm. like everything, you know, that, that typically Kaufman would ask of, or of those similar roles, like like Sidney Lumet would ask of Hoffman to be kind of like this aged brokenness, even mm. though Plemons is still like 33 and is approaching like Hoffman's age when he became big. Um, Plemons still has this youthful self destruction to him that he just carries throughout this so magically i think i i hesitate to find a moment in this movie that i think is is flawed and it actually raises a question even though that other movie is is here on the list now it raises a question of what i can call the best picture um I don't think you have to worry about that because that movie attached. Uh, maybe I don't know. I mean, well, you know me with what I call best picture during our our yeah, yeah, pivotal yeah. film awards. I try to say like, I try to be outside of myself slightly. But I think it's hard because I think they cover a, a little bit of the same territory. They are. They are so bookmarks. For, right. They are bookends for me. So I don't. This movie is amazing, and it's fantastic, and it's excellent, and it's transformative, and it's all of the things. I think my trouble with this movie, Mario, in terms of talking about it, and you mentioned the Tony Collette performance and the David Thewlis performance, which are insane. I don't even really know how to process them. And I think that's part of the problem is that like I they're not even they don't even seem like performances. I don't even know what they are. You know what I mean? They're just beyond the typical the words that you would normally use to describe a, a, an acting performance in a movie. And it's not because they're necessarily so good. I don't want to. I don't want to label something as good or bad. They just go beyond tradition. They go beyond their tradition. They belong into their in their own category. And Jesse Plemons is another version of that. And Jesse Buckley takes it even further than all of those professional. Like Jesse Buckley buries David Thewlis and Tony Collette are fucking amazing. Jesse Buckley buries those people and that dinner table scene when they keep kind of wanting to call her out on like the inconsistencies in the story of their of their meeting and stuff like that and like hold seemingly want to hold her accountable for jake's whole life the way that she kind of ignores them and just kind of plows ahead laughing with like the story of how they met is amazing like the laughs that she is able to conjure during those scenes are 
like real, but they also come from like a part of a person's soul, which is usually not present in a film. Beyond that, half of this movie, this movie is hour, two hours and 14 minutes long. Is half of the movie in a car? I think half of the movie is in a car. Yeah, around, around about. And it, it, even though when it's, it's weird. So we talk, people talk a lot about in terms of feeling something's length. Like, you know, if something's really long, oh, I didn't feel like it was that long. Like, remember when The Irishman came out last year and people were like, it didn't feel like three and a half hours? No, it didn't feel like three and a half hours because it felt like ten fucking hours. Yeah, this does not feel like, this feels like an hour and forty. But, it, 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 was, it, but it, it does feel its length. But, but it does. It feels like it lasts forever. But you're in it. But you never want to leave. It's, I don't even get it. I think the the thing I can, the the phrase that best expresses how I feel about this movie is I don't understand how it works. And that's where I think that Charlie Kaufman is working literally at the top of his game. Like, Synecdoche, New York, you know, is a totally different thing for me. But he's never done a movie like this. And even when he goes into the most Charlie Kaufman-esque things that you can think of him to do, like when he ends the movie with a, a prolonged dance sequence... It doesn't feel like... An, if another director, I think, was had decided to kind of do something really experimental and difficult to end their movie, to, to end their really experimental and difficult movie, it would feel cheap. It would feel really pretentious. This feels like there's more heart to this movie than I could ever imagine someone getting out of that fucking book. You know what I mean? There's a, this movie is about... And I, I mentioned the Owen Gleiberman review of this, where he kind of like mocked it for its um, didacticism, where it's just like it's it's a a a, a piece of uh, miserableism type of thing, mm. where like Charlie he like posits that Charlie Kaufman has descended into this like uber nihilism, where he just hates everything. You know, what I mean, nothing is as good as any of the things that he's doing. I don't think that's true. There is this is a movie about a broken fucking heart. That's what this movie is about. It's movie. This movie is about this guy Jake, who had the whole world in front of him, and is a janitor, and he's just ruined, and not ruined like psychologically, or I mean, even though he is clearly ruined psychologically, all that ruin comes from the fact that his heart is just destroyed, and I think some of the stuff that comes from the, like those the aging and the de aging of when they're at the parents' house. I think, and I, I, maybe we can jump into kind of like an analysis of, of like some of the pieces here. Strike me as reality. Like some of the reasons why he has not been able to move past these places is that kind of weirdo hoarder mentality where he had to care for his dying parents for so long. Like that, that family unit like defined his existence and then without it he didn't know how to redefine it yeah um there is so so comparing and contrasting this to, to the read book and i think the read books is fun there, there's a little too much kitchenness in it um i enjoyed know, it. what are you waiting for for yeah. like four pages was a dumb move well i think and i like the idea i like the way that he transitioned the the um the caller from something that seemed to be of reality 
uh, which I think telegraphed, which I think kind of says like if he wasn't trying to make a twist, he was kind kind of trying to make a little bit of a twist to the caller being like um, another voice in in his head. You know what I mean? Like like a third voice yeah. inside of himself reaching out to the 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 fake parts. Yeah, and there, there's 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 a lot of stuff that like Kaufman does cut, like the the importance of the caller. Um, the cuts the tall the tall man. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. He reduces it to, um, I think that's Tony Collette waving in the door. Is mm-hmm. the closest you get to that? Yeah. Um, I think the but the, the significant difference that that comes in this in this film. And at first, I had trouble with it. We're still just watching that game. <laughs> oh, it's not doing oh, anything. Okay, it's like what's going on here. Um, the significance in it though is 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 in the fact that in reed's book you know jake has is an accomplished like scientist Mm -hmm. he's he's somebody who has a lot of potential and promise Mm -hmm. um it is his overwhelming neurosis and and introversion and potentially i don't want to like you say autism or anything but he has he's Mm -hmm. like so it feels as though there's There's something there's something mentally there um there is a mental illness there Mm -hmm. that drives him to leave all of that to leave that potential and go home What's different here, and, and I, at first I, I didn't particularly like it, but as I sat with it, I prefer it, is the mm. fact that Jake in this was nothing. Ever. He was never... See, I don't know if I agree with that, but, but no, no, but, but I, in the sense of he was not somebody who, ran, who, who had an opportunity and ran away from it. Sure, he, okay, I get it. Okay. He was so buried by external forces, yep. telling him he was just diligent. You know, he wasn't mm. a genius, you know, like the genius genus thing. Like, it's a great play on words, but it, it yep. has permanence. Um, that utterly fantastic Plemons monologue where he talks about all the people he sees in the high school yep. every day. And Buckley's fantastic delivery of, like, having the... Like, throughout this, she's had, like, a, a bit of a care for Jake, um, but she just says, Jake. And the way she says it. Is like it's the one part where it's like the some part of his mind, the hopeful part of his mind, going like, you know, stop beating yourself down about that. He's had so many external forces, fucking ruin him. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard some people like I can't remember what it was. Talk, kind of talk about like, oh, um, with its, you know, kind of casting something like Judd from from Oklahoma into a brighter light. It's kind of like reveling in this like what it means to be an incel sort of thing. Oh my but that God. is... Are you fucking kidding me? Not at all what this is. Because this, this character is not begrudging anybody. He doesn't hold any... He's just... Bad things have, have, have kept happening to him. And, and he's always been told in his life that he was just always there but not great. He, he has difficulty kind of delivering a critical thought that's not kind of just a repetition. Mm-hmm. But if you have enough people telling you that, it makes sense that eventually you think, you know, if you're not interacting with people, if, if throughout high school or whatnot or, or throughout your early life you don't have the, that sort of interaction, you can see how a person wouldn't understand wouldn't he, this Jake lacks emotional intelligence? You know, he lacks emotional intelligence, but he's a deeply like decent person still. Well, you see that when he's the old janitor, and, yeah, and yeah, young yeah. and Buckley talks to him, and she goes to just hug him, and he just hugs her like a father would, or, or somebody that's trying to comfort somebody would. There's no perversion in that. It's just like a, 
It is the hug of just like, I need to hold somebody, I need to comfort somebody. And what this comes down, it becomes a deeply more depressing tale. Um, and eminently depressing, but also I, I appreciate Kaufman having the car turn over at the very end. Because mm. even though this Jake's old, there's still he still leaves that glimmer of hope in there, you know, that maybe these pieces come together, um, you know, composed to like Reed's just having him kill himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, cause he mentions, he mentions story like, Kaufman, yeah, yeah. yeah, that cuts that Aaron versus like Kaufman mentions, like it was a really violent end and I didn't want that. Like I wanted to have some sort of hope, some, something there. And I think that that really works. Cause you know, this Jake, compared to to the book Jake is is a much more sympathetic person because he he has emotional empathy he's grown throughout the years to have emotional empathy just by observing people mm-hmm. um it's just his his he has such like this this quasi damaged youth um and in steep insecurity that he was never able to fulfill that and even though now like 40 years have passed I like the fact that Carly Kaufman opens up the door to like, mm. he still has the ability, like with the car turning back over, you know, the engine turning mm-hmm. over, he has the possibility of, of getting that even in his twilight years. Well, I think, so one of the things I, one of the things I appreciated about the movie, I liked the book. I liked the book a lot. I thought it was fun. Um, one of the things I appreciated about the movie is that it took it's it. kitschy though. It took it. Oh, it's totally kitschy. It took it to a different place psychologically. And I think it did that by the by switching the focus of the the film from the girl from Lucy, whatever her name is, to the focus is always on uh, Jake in this in this film. Even when Jesse Buckley's character is talking to herself, is the most charismatic thing like on on the screen at any given moment the most interesting like thing that's happening um the focus is still always on jake it's still jake's story and so that's one of the things that i think the book do, is less successful at is promoting jake as the main character where this movie does to the point where this movie gives real depth to some of those things that occur in the book and occur in the movie but they just mean something different so you could just kind of mention off air the idea of like it's a hard life on a farm you know what I mean? Life then, can get depressing on a farm. Right. Uh, and the, life, uh, yeah. life can be depressing on a farm. And then you get, you know, you get all that stuff after the, uh, after the fact, like much after the fact about like him having to feed his mother and like his dad getting old and like the dementia and blah, 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 blah. It really gives you a sense of what... Oh, Jesus Christ. Really quickly. That scene yeah. where David... Because we we're supposed to assume his father outlived the mother. Mm-hmm. And he's just... She like freezes and mm-hmm. david thulis is just looking at her and is talking about how she used to be funny and all of a sudden it's like i missed oh, that fucking scene but uh, so this is this is this is a movie i definitely cried at a couple times yeah it's it's weirdly it's um it's not weirdly it well it's weirdly moving because it comes at such a weird the 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 way that he does it is so strange you know what i mean it's not he's getting emotions out of he's extrapolating deep deep emotions out of like really weird instances but is it like like i i like i don't you know i don't sit close to like the jake character in this and i know you texted me like i guess this is a weird time for you to see this um <laughs> well you texted me that is well no time. i was like because it was after i read the book yeah like the book is a little more like in tone with 
some of the anxieties I have about being there, but never making that step. Uh-huh. Um, whereas this is a little more of somebody who's more introverted, somebody who doesn't have friends and whatnot. Whereas See, the Jake in the book does have friends right. and everything. So the, but just I, I think the thing I appreciate about this is that the Jake in the book, it's hard to understand how Jake becomes Jake. Yeah. This he just is, breaks and you don't know why. This is easy to see it because it's what does Jake have to sell of himself to make his life to make his life work and his life is not just his life. And I think that's the interesting thing about the fact that he's in this relationship throughout this movie. It's like a six to seven week or forever relationship. His life is never gonna be about just the relationship you know what i mean it's never going to be about like how do i deal with this relationship with this girl it's always going to be about how do i make this relationship with this girl work in context with the relationship with my parents the relationship with growing up with this farm the relationship of the reality of what it means to be alive which is that at any given moment you can feel like maggots are eating at the underside of you without you knowing that they're there you know what i mean and that's that's the reality of this film is that there is always something maybe not always I don't want to be universal about this because I don't want to cheapen it in this film there is an underside which is just as which is more damaging obviously than what's on top what's on the surface it's a brilliant fucking metaphor I don't know if the book the book it's in the book it's accomplished, I think, and I think it's meant to accomplish the same, the same thing. It's better accomplished here in the. It's better. Well, it's more fully realized here in the film than it is in the book. I think the interesting thing about the book is the book urges you at the end to read it again. You know, it tells you like it's a short. Oh, see, I think the reading. movie, or, like the movie, but the book, demands the book, to be but the seen book again. tells you at the end. Oh, Wabsy, we start at the beginning, right? And I think the book is like with the shortness and the curtness of the book, and you know. 209 pages mm. pretty fairly big type four pages you could skip over because it's just the same sentence over and over mm-hmm. again it urges you to kind of like go back and then see everything now from the mind but you get it Jake. but i think but you get it you we, do get yeah. it um and, and but that's like the intent like but like the first time you're reading it sort of thing it's maybe like not apparent of that um the, the difference in this and, and and what i think adds to the like i said to not being close to the jake in the book are I mean, a little closer to Jake in the book, but not close to the Jake in the movie, is the fact that even has somebody who has like a cre- tends to try to have a creative mind, daydreamer, a daydreamer. Yeah. Like I'm definitely a daydreamer. Like the reason I think these 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 moments hit, even when they're so ephemeral and abstract, is because they feel like authentic pieces of the yeah. soul. There's all of uh, this man's soul. Sure. There's always an underhanging current of not only of just melancholy, not sadness or anything else, um, but just melancholy and like this, this, this ball in the throat of the fact that like, you know, like they say, time's moving through you. Like if he's just stuck in place and time's moved through him, um, and it always retains that. So even when the moments are weird, it, it hits you at weird spots sure. because that sentiment stays. But you know what I love? So the idea of the word melancholy is so perfect here. It is a gold star word because the idea of melancholy for me represents a knowing sadness. So melancholy, sadness is just like, ah, oh, I'm just sad. Why are you sad? I don't know. I'm just sad. If you're melancholy, 
to me anyway, it intimates this this kind of knowing processed sadness that you're just like, this is what my life is like, and because of that, I am sad. And it's it feels like a thing, and you know, not there's no reason necessarily to to go to Lars von Trier here, but I think the I think the idea of melancholia is I think uh, uh, illustrates an interesting point here is where. Kirsten Dunst's mood in that movie. And I, I actually didn't even know I was going to go here. So the Jesse Pillman's Kirsten Dunst thing is not related yeah, it's at all. A, uh, it's going um, to be humorous. I'm going to say really quickly, if somebody's going to make a perfect adaptation of this book, I think it's Lars von Trier in terms of making the book on screen mm. directly. But in terms of like making it feel like a human being, yeah, like Kaufman Trier. Melancholia works. Her sadness comes from knowing that the world is going to end. You know what I mean? Everyone knows it. She knows it and makes her fucking sad. That's the same thing that's happening here. It's not happening in the book. It's happening here. He knows the whole time that what this means. It's, but it also kind of eschews the idea that like it's on some kind of weirdo continuum where he's maybe done this like a whole bunch of times. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. It doesn't really make any difference. Um... It's, I'm like flashing. I, I'm like flashing back to scenes, and I can't like process what they mean. The thing that I think was most, this is an because of all those things. This movie becomes not just a movie; it becomes an experience. You are inhabiting something while you watch it, and and yeah. I think that's where the genius of like the an hour spent in a car is, is that you don't necessarily feel like you're inside of the car. You feel like you're inside of the head of the of where this car is contained. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like you are simultaneously watching the car while processing the car. You are watching Tulsi Town while processing whatever Tulsi Town means to him. And that's where that thing you brought up before, like the that shot in his bedroom, like with the bookcase and stuff like that, is so pivotal literally a pivot moment is because it gives you the tools to process what you are seeing while you are seeing it which puts you in the exact same headspace as this character it's fucking weird it feels so weird because like you get the very obvious jimmy earn but you've seen you know some of the reference you see the words worth really clearly you see anna caven's ice which is kind of like describing very what you've already kind of seen in this movie yep. in terms of like the weird spot she's in and kind of like weird obsession. Um, then you get like Pauline Kael's for keeps, which I think the review is in there. Mm-hmm. Right. I um, think so. And I... David Foster Wallace's uh, book of essays. I suppose we've anything. Um, and some of the other things that will, well come in later. Um, you know what I find to pivot off of this, like mm-hmm. to pivot to something else. Yeah. Can I pivot to something else. Yeah. Do you know what I find inter- the really fascinating about this film? And I find it I found it fascinating in Ant Kind. Mm. I didn't really cover it. Um and I find it interesting here is Charlie Kaufman feels like he's becoming an expert of finding pieces of other people's words. Um and presenting them in a totally new light. Mm-hmm. Pauline Kael's review turns from something that's kind of like peefy 
and plithy, 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 and plithy, plithy, and 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 fun to something incredibly mean spirited. Which not is always even, a. It's not mean spirited though, but it seems to define an aspect of this character. Yeah, but no, I don't even mean that. But I mean, what I mean in the sense is, is even beyond that. I'm talking now just purely about the pieces okay, of okay. art he extracts. Okay. Um. It becomes like. It becomes like a thing of like it kind of mentions this. He, he does bring this up a bit. Like Pauline Kale was, was really awful. <laughs> well, know? she had an aesthetic. She had an aesthetic that she perceived film to exist within, and if it didn't was it exist within that aesthetic, she wrote it off. Yeah, um, you know, you know, and, and like like that, or 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 you know, the kind of discussion of of David Foster Wallace kind of being reduced to a suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, like everything now being viewed through the veil of the suit. Sure. And like, but Freddie Sinellis makes that comment all the time. Yeah, exactly. But um, you know, like like things that like I think Bra- David Foster Wallace. This is apparently going to take away my man card. I think he's fucking garbage for the most part. Um, but some of his essays, like his his uh, his speech to the graduating class at Stanford? Kenyon State. Yeah, like that is a, a great or Kenyon sp- College. Yeah, is a great speech in terms of just life in general and it has nothing to do with like a suicide but everything is painted now by a suicide lonely room that performance of lonely room makes you go like uh, holy fucking shit like like judd fry gets portrayed throughout that god-awful fucking musical as just as like desperate awful villain whereas just as a guy like clinging out reaching out for and he's doing it in the complete wrong way obviously mm-hmm. because he's been born in this thing and maybe like lonely room's trying to do something but it really doesn't because like was it poor Judd ain't ain't, uh, ain't like what is it wasn't like falls it uh, poor Judd has died or whatever mm-hmm. um, like that kind of jokey weirdness thing that comes before it like it presents everything in a new light or are actually adding some like real gravitas mm. to like John Nash's finale speech in Beautiful Mind which always feels kind of garbagey in, oh, in the terrible. Ron Howard movie um, you know even something like like putting out the Van Gogh line mm-hmm. of of colors are the deeds and suffering of light mm-hmm. like and like people see those lines and like have them in in absence of any meaning but he throws that in there he doesn't mention it's a von golf line i don't think von, i don't remember if von golf is on that display case but it's, it's hard to say it's, i'm sure yeah. it is i'm, I'm sure it's it is somewhere yeah um because like a beautiful mind like vhs is on there um <laughs> But like he, he gives it context, and and it's a thing he, he does all the time through Aunt Kind. But like fucking giving like people are like it's pretentious just mentioning all these things offhandedly. Like people like kind of but like he's mention not. This, but he's not. He's giving them all context, not only to his characters, but just to a state of mind, like a state of mind in which he's approached these. Well, things. so one of the things I think because these feel yeah like, just finally uh, yeah yeah go these down, things go. feel like a state of mind like Kaufman is in when he came into it. And so one of the things I think is really true about Ant Kind, which I think is true, which I find true about myself and which I'm also kind of grappling with on a, a fairly regular basis is... Falling in mantles. Yeah. If you are... Oh my God, I wish. If you... A certain segment of society suggests that if you have absorbed this certain art that you are this person, you are... a you are a, an above board person. You know what I mean? You are A plus. Other people are down here, but you are up here. This movie is kind of proof positive that it it doesn't mean anything 
you can absorb all the high art, the highest of high art as we've established it to be. Pauline Kael, I think, is used here as the voice of um, a, a type of person who views film not for pleasure, but for um, uh, an aesthetic meaning. You know what I mean? So it's above, it's that kind of, it's got like a Greek or Roman kind of field. It's got an Aristotelian feel to it. You know what I mean? It's it's appreciation above um, the base uh, of your senses. You know what I mean? And that's where she, he's, she's laying... Uh, the woman under the influence thing, I think, is fascinating. Uh, why that one? You know what I mean? There's a million things that she could have picked. Why that one? Maybe Cassavetes feels representative of some kind of um, cinematic ideal that a certain segment of society holds truer than others or holds in a higher esteem than others. But it posits that if you... It, it throws into pretty stark relief, I think, the idea that if you... Just because you subscribe to these same ideals as these people, just because you hold art and slash life in these in this way, you look at it in this way, doesn't mean you're going to be happy. It doesn't mean anyone is going to love you. It doesn't mean you're going to be any better at loving anybody else. You know what I mean? It's where art kind of falls away and you have to be a person. And because of the nature of Jake's life, all he had was he had these two domineering parents, one who couldn't see the forest for the trees and one who held him way too accountable for things that didn't really matter. And Tony Collette is the former and David Thewlis is the latter. Um, and then they die in fairly horrific ways. You know what I mean? One, you know, needs to be fed and you you, know, you can imagine change is, is, is in like, Jake is like the hospice care there and one is just falling apart mentally. Those other things don't. Those things don't fucking matter. You know what I mean? You're all the Pauline Kael reviews of of John Cassavetes' films don't matter. All the all the poems in the world don't matter. All the musicals in the world they don't matter. It's this reality, the stark reality of what life really is. It's blood and it's guts and it's maggots. You know what I mean? And that's what it. It's maggots eating a fucking way at you. That's life. And. That's what the book doesn't accomplish. Not because, because I don't think it, mean, it meant to go there. That Charlie Kaufman, to your point, extrapolated from the book. Yeah, and but... Which is what he also, did in All of Ankind. Also offers this... But still, in the same way that, I don't know, Ankind doesn't offers... What I enjoy over this is offers this glimmer of something. Yeah, you gotta process like that. You have to process that stuff, and maybe this movie is an example of his processing it. And instead of this it being feels, an this ending, is, this is one hundred percent a companion piece to Ankind, by the way. Yeah, it's weird. It it felt it, like it feels so much more heavily researched than all of his other stuff in the terms of yeah. like how dense it is. Well, because he he didn't really he wasn't necessarily commenting on specific art yeah, no, and no, other no. stuff like you know Synecdoche New York has a bunch of references to things but it doesn't seem like he's trying to process the nature of those things it doesn't seem like he's trying to process the nature of what um, death of a salesman means or could mean in Synecdoche New York it seems like he's using that satirically you know what I mean or if he's processing it he's processing it satirically he's processing like a general nature of art in Synecdoche, New York. In this, he's actually saying, like, I'm going to go deeper. I'm going to pick some things, and then I'm going to 
I'm going to view a life through the prism yeah, of those I'm going to process them how a person will see them, how a person will, will consume them, how a person will frame their life around them, how a person will spend eight months worrying over I wasted time from a movie. Or, that's, that's a personal. That's a personal comment. Mario, to our, I mean, how do we know? not look at this whole enterprise that we've engaged in for the last two years and like not see a bunch of what we're doing contained within this movie? Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I'm gonna. I mean, we're gonna hilariously get to the point in my list where I'm confronting this exact idea. I'm not even gonna say it. You know what I'm talking about. I'm, the idea that art is salvation. I'm going to confront it in very similar ways that he's confronting it here. And and I a, have been. A movie I added to my list confronted like me starting to get off my ass and, and, and making advances as an as a, as a, a adult male. Man. It, this movie is fucking insane. Yeah. But in like the best possible ways. The people that... I, do we think it gets... Do we think this gets... Re- I think no. this gets recognized. I think it does. I think Jesse Buckley maybe. But I think that's it. I think this is going to stick. I don't think so. I think it's out already. It's hard. It's fucking hard, man. I don't know. Man. I would love it to. I just think it's hard. I think, it, especially in a year that's going to be heavily Netflix, I think this is going to be the Netflix movie that gets out. Jesse Buckley, maybe, because she's. Fu- and Jesse Clemens, too. Because they're both. Jesse Buckley. And Tony Clint will slip in there because Tony Clint always. Even more <laughs> so than. Jesse Clemens is doing, obviously, the best work of his career. Jesse Buckley is on fire in this movie. I, it's insane. She's insane. Yeah. I don't know. We are already at 53 minutes. Are you surprised? No. This, we knew this was going to happen. <laughs> it's, but this, this movie is something else. Yeah. Um, I would recommend not seeing it. Well, you know what I hate, no, Mario? I mean, I'm, I'm you know what I fucking hate? And that's what I, one of the things I hate about the culture. It's one of the things that I always feel like... What we don't understand about the Donald Trump phenomenon is this. That people are like talking about this movie like, oh, this is movie's going to ruin your date night. Fuck you, man. This I is, think it's a... I don't know these, it's a good date night movie, but... But who, but who, who cares? cares? Yeah. It's a movie. The it's, fact yeah. that we have to see the culture on these very specific terms, this is not a date night movie, so you shouldn't see it. Go fuck yourself. Fuck date nights, man. Also, also it's funny because it escapes a major part of this film that that i extrapolated is is the fact that like end of the book is the fact that like who fucking cares what a good date night thing is in the sense of two people who could become partners Mm -hmm. might not like the same fucking movies right might not give a shit about the same movies but there's something there there's something different yeah it's something that like the jake in the film starts to understand at the end Mm -hmm. it's something that the jake in the book never does but it's it's the fact that like oh his idealized version of things aren't real. It's just something he's created, and he needs to get past that. Mm-hmm. And he needs to only worry about himself and about his own self-care. He doesn't need to project anything to outside. Because he's always done that throughout his life. He's projected stuff out, right? Yep. Yep. He's projected yep. it on other people, not really ever accepting the fact that all of his problems were from projections onto him. Mm-hmm. You know, And it's like, who? you know, some people have partners... Who eat meat and, uh, and others who are vegan? Some partners, some well, partners oh. who uh, have partners who hate film 
and hate art and other like they have partners so, who love art. I want to. I mean, I, that's and it doesn't matter. You don't yeah, have to, like convince yeah, yeah. your partner or you convince the other the people important in your life. Like, like I have tried to conv- I tried to convince people to watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire, and all the like the things back for me have been like I don't really get it. And and for a few months I was like, but I was trying to explain it, and. It, it kind of evolved in me, and this this I think this film one hundred percent kind of says that's like, you know, what? it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They're not telling me like you're an idiot for liking this because I appreciate those people's company. I appreciate the company of others. Blah blah blah. And and, and we're here on a different level, but we're not going to see things eye to eye, and that's fine. That's how people work. There is your your uh, example there. Put me in mind of this book um, called The Vegetarian. It's by this Korean author named Hajin, and no, it's not Hajin. Hajin's a different Korean author. Who wrote The Vegetarian? I got it. I got it. It's a oh. Korean book. Yeah. Okay. Keep keep talking. And Hawk Kang. Yeah. Han yeah. Yeah. Kang? Yeah. And in the book, this woman has a dream, and when she wakes up, she becomes a vegetarian, and nobody in her life understands why she has decided to become a vegetarian. It's it's a it's a it's Roughly the size of, of I'm thinking of ending things. It's written in a fairly similar spare, kind of brutalist uh, style. Uh, it's a brutal book, but it it reminded me of it when I was watching the movie while I was reading the book. More so when I was watching the movie than I was reading the book of an uncompromising vision of what it means to believe in something or to know something or to feel something. And how it kind of fucking tears you the fuck apart. And one of the things I think, and I struggle with this too, I think maybe that's the reason that we're friends or doing this list or whatever, is that like, I just want people to understand where I'm coming from because this stuff is important to me. And, but I also kind of know, and I guess I know it more every day, that like people just aren't going to get it. Sometimes they're just not going to get it. Like I was having this conversation with JP about... High Life, and he's like, High Life was good, but I didn't like, I didn't like it. Like, and this is nothing. Say nothing against JP. Like, you know, whatever. But sometimes things just get in your blood, and it's hard to get them out, and you don't know why they're there. They just end up there. And I think one of the genius things of this movie is that Charlie Kaufman doesn't bother trying to give us like an overall aesthetic arc for why Jake loves the things he loves. He loves a beautiful mind, Pauline Kael, and musicals. Wordsworth, uh, Eva HD in his later years. He likes them. He loves them. They define him somehow. But he's not going to try to define for you how they define him or the exact nature in which they all relate to each other and link up to equal a person. I have talked about that idea, exact idea on this podcast a hundred times in various settings, in your movies and my movies, the idea that like you're defined by the things that you like. You know what I mean? That somehow contained within those things is a version of yourself that you can say, oh, yeah, look, I mean, just watch these movies and listen to these records and, like, you know, look at this painting and you'll you'll just get me. You'll just get me. And that never fucking works. I've been married for 12 years and it still is not a thing. You know what I mean? Which is good. It's a positive. That's like a, a, that's a, that's a plus way to live. Yeah, I'm just finally getting that. Yeah, where you just kind of, like, you're never going to be 100% on the same page about stuff, but in a way that fulfills you more than being on the same page as things. You know what I mean? Having separate interests, but 
that those interests don't matter. That those interests don't those interests don't define the nature of yourself. It's much deeper than that, and that's where Jake has to go, and that's where dancing comes in, and it all gets figured out because of fucking dance. Did you like the dancing? I did. I loved it. I when the dancing started, I could not help. I could not stop thinking about what you were going to think of the dancing. Not because I thought you were going to think. And, like anything specific about it, I was like, "Oh my god, how is Mario going to process the dancing? How is he going to do it?" It's it's, awesome. it's, it's just narratively necessary. It's it it, it 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 it, and maybe not narratively necessary is the right word, but it just felt as though the next needed step. Which is, <laughs> it feels like the natural. Who saw that coming? Who saw like yeah, an extended exactly. dance sequence is like the next necessary step? But while I was watching it, I was like, "Yeah, oh, of sure. course, yeah, 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 yeah obviously." Of course, they're going to separate. They're gonna dance. It's gonna be some kind of a fight. Beautiful. Whew. I get Oklahoma over. It's gonna be great. Ah, this is great. All right, so we'll be back with my night. Eighteen. Uh, Eighteen. Oh. Yeah. Okay. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Uh, so my number eighteen um, signals an end of, of of things. Thinking of ending things here. In the sense that I'm thinking of ending talking about comedies for myself. Things get a lot less funny from here is on it? out for me, Mario. I don't know about you, but this is, is this is it. I don't know. I don't know. Is, is, am I done with comedies? My number three? <laughs> You're not done with comedies. I, mean, I suppose in a way I'm not done with talking about comedies, but I'm done with comedies on my list. And the reason for that six. is that... What's, what's my six? It's not a that's kind of it's not a comedy though. I don't see it as a comedy. I see six as a comedy for me. Yeah, it's not a comedy for me. Okay. It's a way of life. I actually I only have one comedy left on my list. Yeah, we I think we've been kind of like whittling. We're, we're, them we're always talked about how like comedies don't mean jack shit for us. Well, it just it's just weird. It like defines a very specific part of your life, but it's not like the whole thing. I don't know. It's it's, it's hard to grapple no. with like what comedies. It like, seems represent. like most people who aren't big movie people have comedies as their number one movie, which is fine. Do they? A lot of people I've talked to. Huh. This movie for me defines, I think, a lot of Seth Rogen stuff actually. <sighs> like, a lot of Pineapple Express and Forty Year Old Virgin. Wait, what is this on? Like just people I've talked to I've, who are not big movie people. Just come on, come on. You're allowed to like that. I are you? Sure. Ugh, I don't know. They're not big movie people. If I feel that way, Mario, it's because of this mind number 18, which defined uh, everything that I would find funny for the whole rest of my life. And it is Monty Python's film, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. When that's the round table, we dance where we're able. We do routines and all the scenes of footwork in bed. Mm. 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 
I got introduced to this movie as I think we said when we talked about your podcast with my dad. Um, I was fairly young, and it was and still is in a lot of ways the funniest thing I've ever seen. Uh, there are lines in this movie. I was trying to find like a clip to play here in the trailer because the trailer is weird. The trailer is very Monty Python that kind of like repeats itself and um, you know is more uh, aesthetically funny than it is like actually funny. So I was like, oh, what what clip should I play here? There are a million clips. You know, I introduced your episode with the the clip of the repression, Michael Palin being repressed. What's the best best line? Right? Um, I did. Uh, I introduced. Did I introduce this episode? Yeah, I introduced this episode with the, you whole, have to this episode. With the holy even, hand grenade When are you going to introduce sequence. it with Javier Navratri's score? Right, right, right. I introduced Spoilers. this with the, the, um, the holy hand grenade thing. But it could be anything. You know what I mean? There's just like a million things. Even when it seems like it's not going anywhere, it always goes to like the best possible place it could go. This movie defines my sense of humor times a million. What does that mean? It means an absurdity. It means... Uh, a penchant for finding like plays on words very funny it means a penchant for getting exercised about things that aren't worth getting exercised about like hilarious so me and my my little guy have been reading a lot of calvin and Hobbes, which he has been like really digging and one of the the pleasures of calvin and Hobbes is just watching calvin get so fucking fired up about stuff that like isn't really very important and there's no reason to bring like a real life sentiment into thinking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but like the ways in which Graham Chapman gets so pissed off by everyone just the idea that Graham Chapman is always like the straight man in these movies is like the best thing ever, and but he totally plays along. Like one of the things I was going to put in here was the African swallow scene. Like one of the first scenes in the movie where he approaches this castle. He's got the coconuts, and he's like, oh, we have ridden for many miles from Mercia, and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, what do you mean, ridden? You're using coconuts. And he's like, so? And he's like, where'd you get the coconut? And he talks about, like, where he got it, and he's like, how did it get there? Like, are you saying coconuts are migratory? Uh, are you saying that coconuts migrate? And he's like, maybe it was carried there. Does the swallow not blah, blah, blah? And he's like, are you saying a swallow carried this coconut? They talk about the airspeed velocity of swallows and, like, the weight of a coconut. And all this stuff. It's the best but it's also one of those things that can't be replicated and it also can't be explained it's just funny and if you don't get it you don't get it it's one of the the beauties of monty python and you could probably kind of attest to this too because i think everyone that likes monty python can attest to the fact that like there are people who have seen monty python and they're just like i don't understand why is this funny what is actually happening here that's supposed to be funny i have seen People that I've I've presented Monty Python to who don't like it uh, find it pretentious. Hmm. I suppose it could be, but it's also like I don't know. It seems so down to earth to me, mm. right? I don't. I, it just seems so natural. Like, how is the knights that say knee pretentious? Well, because it's what it's surrounded by. Like some of the humor it's surrounded by, they they find to be pretentious. I guess. I just don't get it. And it's maybe the thing that I think is most significant to me about this movie is that for a, a time, Mario, the only people that 
not just got this movie, but had seen this movie were me and my dad. Maybe my uncles had seen it. They had the same kind of... My dad and, and his brothers and his sister have the same kind of appreciation for a lot of different things. Maybe they saw it too, but we never talked about it. But for a long time, the only people that were aware of this movie, as far as I was concerned, were me and my dad. I know my brother saw it, but he didn't matter. Like, at all. It was just like, me and my dad loved Monty Python. And I think it was one of the real joys of showing it to my kids, was the fact that they got it. Like, right away, I showed them the Black Knight scene, and they laughed at all the appropriate things. It wasn't the fact that he got his arms and legs cut off. It was the fact that he was protesting the, the meaning of his arm, yeah. that his arms and legs got cut off or what he was going to be still be able to do to him when his arms and legs got off. It was not the idea that, like, uh, you know, that the rabbit was the murderer. It was the way that the, the cheap, shitty way that they made the rabbit move was, like, the thing they found funny. Which is really the funny thing about it. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's it's not just that it's a rabbit. It's that like it's a rabbit on a stick that just goes, and then the guy's head falls off and like blood shoots out of it. That's the funny thing, and it's so funny. I find it so funny. I find everything about all the Monty Python stuff, Flying Circus, until forever. So funny. The albums, everything. Were you introduced first to this film? To this film, yeah. Because my first introduction, I think I talked about was was Flying Circus. Yeah. So it was this film, and then. Because Flying Circus, I don't think I don't. How how did you see Flying Circus? Just like on yes. PBS. So I don't. We, I just didn't. Maybe my dad didn't know it was on PBS at the time when I was a kid. You didn't pay for the cable subscription that gave you PBS. I don't know. I just don't. I don't know anything about it. Yeah, I know it's free. Um, I don't. I didn't know about it. So it was just like the VHS of this movie, or it was on something, and I saw it. And then it was the VHS of Life of Brian. But my dad also had, like, the records. So there's a record... Oh, what is the contractually, uh, Contractual Obligation album. has a song on it called I Like Traffic Lights. And it's just like, I like traffic lights. I like traffic... It's for four minutes. And then they just rhyme. And it's got the Lumberjack song. It's got all this other stuff on it. And it's just beautiful. It's, it's so funny. Fucking funny. That Traffic Lights song, like, defined my existence for, like, a month. And it was because I was like, I'm the only one in the world that finds this funny, this traffic light song. And I did. I really, and I found it legitimately funny. It wasn't pretentious. It was like, there is nothing else in the world that is like this song. Remember those Adam Sandler records that tried so hard to be funny? Mm-hmm. Like, they're all going to laugh at you and like Stan and Judy's boy, whatever. The Monty Pythons thing didn't seem like they were trying to make you laugh. It seemed like they were trying to do the opposite. They were trying to make you not laugh. They were trying to do the worst possible job of humor that you could possibly do. There's a direct relationship to my appreciation and love of like Andy Kaufman at around. Like Andy Kaufman would be a little bit later, but like I got obsessed with Andy Kaufman for the same reasons that I was obsessed with Monty Python because they weren't trying to make you laugh. They were trying to do something else, and it was just funny. Well, we've agreed about a lot of times. With our sense of humor being something that starts out maybe slightly funny, mm-hmm. stops being funny, and then becomes hilarious because it keeps going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that's there's so much of that stuff that's that's in 
in this movie. You know, I, I never mentioned this, but this was one of the first two film. I got my video store account in Gardnerville, Nevada at 16 years old, mm-hmm. the earliest age you can get. This was one of the first two videos I rented. Oh, DVDs, really? DVDs, I should say. I rented. What was the other one? I want to say... I'm try- so I was trying to remember. I, I, I'm scouting my memory right now to remember it. But, um, yeah, because I, I had not seen, you know, I'd seen Holy Grail before that, but I wasn't as connected to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my next trip back was Life of Brian. And then time after that was unfortunately Meeting of Life. Well, Meeting of Life is is oddly great, but also I it's hard to watch. Like I just don't like it's too it's just too piecemeal. Yeah, Uh, but it's not even the piecemeal. Like there's stuff there's stuff that I know that people found. Like I think my dad finds the eating the eating sketch like very funny. And I think for a while I found it funny too. I never, I never. And now it. I just it like I find it tough, and not because it's so gross. It's just it just seems mean. mean. It's mean. Yeah, yeah I agree. It's um, really it doesn't mean. have the. This movie is. I think one of the reasons I love this movie. I think is one of the reasons I felt comfortable showing it to my kids, and probably one it's, of the reasons that my kids like it. It's so full of joy. Yeah, as a childhood, like even like the violence and all that has like this weird childhood wonder. Yeah, it's, the violence is Looney Tunes style. It's, it it's, is. It's it's, it's, it's you know. You know, even though like gay women boars are dying and whatnot, <laughs> there's still like um, a non-stakes to it. There's no stakes. Whatsoever it's not threatening it. to either your personhood or your like your interests or is, your beliefs. Is Life system. of Brian R-rated? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because there's nudity in it. Okay. Just uh, because meaning of like Life of Brian has is, is Life of Brian. But, I think but, is but the Life same of thing. Brian has that same sort yeah. of like has that same sort of kind of like wonder and joy to it. Um, well, that are... meaning of life is so right. devoid of. Well, the meaning of life is just a nihilistic fucking oh, nightmare. Yeah. Oh, it's so dark. I mean, it, it ends with like their darkest sketch. Like the deaths, the death sketch is, is just so horribly dark. Mm. Um, but Life of Brian, I think, is... And maybe I talked about this a little bit when we did it. And there's a reason these, both, these two movies are both in my top 40 here. Life of Brian seems like in love with its idea. Where this movie just seems like it's in love with the comedy. You know what I mean? There's so much comedy. There's every one of these like self-contained sketches works as a sketch, but also works as the the like the sketch that I kept coming back to when I was doing this last time. I was so, I so wanted to find the Castle Anthrax like clip to put in here, but related to the conversation we just had, I wasn't sure like if it would go over well with everybody if the Castle Anthrax was like acceptable to the culture now you know what i mean mm. but i was just i mean it's just so fun <laughs> it's just so fucking funny um how everyone wants a spanking and then they'll move on to the oral sex and then lancelot comes in to save everybody um it's uh, it's just so fucking good um but it's not it's not mean-spirited in the least it is it is all light-hearted and it is all meant with like the best of intentions as like the cla- the most classic best flying circus sketches are you know what i mean that even when they're being like offensive the idea is not to like cut somebody down the idea is to find the the humor within this kind of ridiculous like sentiment even if they are cutting somebody down they're not doing it mean spiritedly 
And I think a Holy Grail kind of exemplifies that. Even if it's making fun of Christianity all over the place. Um, it doesn't ever feel like you're making fun of, like, Christians. Or if you are making fun of Christians, that Christians would be in on the joke. You know what I mean? Because the way, you know, to go back to the Holy Hand Grenade scene that we opened the sketch with, you know, the Bible reads like that. And there are, you know, they're not going to find a Holy Hand Grenade scene in the Bible, but you're going to find some kind of scene that's worded relatively similarly to something like that regarding something equally as stupid. You know, it's just great. It was a Final Destination DVD. That was the other movie I rented. Was that a, what, is that a blockbuster? No, this was a... a local place? Like, it was called like Video Mania. Yeah. Local place. Do you miss video stores at all? I do. I kind of do. I have a lot you of sense what, memories of video stores. You know what I miss about video stores? Mm-hmm. And I was talking about this this weekend with somebody. Um, I miss, because I have... I, you see my Blockbuster shirt. Like I wear the Blockbuster mm-hmm. shirt occasionally. Um, I miss going into a video store on a Tuesday or a Friday, really anticipating the new release, mm-hmm. and it not being there. Mm. And knowing you have to wait. Or even better, one like it not being there, but then on the return deck, it's one copy. Yeah, yeah. See, it's funny. I have... But now everything's like so available to you, like the I instance. Know. And it's like, that's disappointing i have a sense memory of like the two video stores that i went to a lot as a kid like i can i can draw you the layout of them like right now like exactly where stuff was where they kept the laser discs on sale you know what i mean Mm. the whole thing where the adult section was like where the you know then how the where the the counter was in relation to like everything else I can I can do it right there now. There was a, a local chain in Las Vegas when I was a kid, um, that did themed rooms. Mm-hmm. Ooh! So you would enter, and to your right would be this mark, like little marquee. Um, so you'd enter through the entrance. In the middle <laughs> were their their dramas and their comedies. They didn't do jack shit for those. This is just like mm-hmm. their, you know, like they didn't do anything special. Um, but to your right was like the marquees and that was new releases in the back corner was this a graveyard you had to walk over like a wooden plank to get to your horror movies <laughs> i remember always looking at oh god what the hell is that movie about the killer like i always wanted to rent this as a kid too it's about the killer crabs that leak like blood beach or whatever i always mm. looked at the cover i think it was called blood beach and I always wanted to rent it like they had a brothel barn door for like the x-rated movies yeah yeah, yeah. um like an old school saloon door yeah yeah but they also had like another saloon door but like more of like a saloon setup for their um action Uh and cowboy movies it's pretty good but in their other location you actually had to walk over a bridge which had like a little water thing Hmm. feature into a submarine for their action scene what it's pretty good yeah what's going on over there it was it was exciting well i think that's kind of where i i think Monty Python and the Holy Grail represents some kind of weirdo movie purity for me. Yeah. And I, I, I'm not directly... And I have to say, I don't have, I have like a direct experience with it and then yeah. it got kind of like handed... Like Monty Python got handed down to me. Right. And, I, I, and I, I, I'm glad to keep the tradition alive in my family as well where... Me too. It's just... <laughs> you can borrow my kids I and point, I point to the tissue in the ground over there. Oh no, Mario. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> 
It's like the saddest thing we've ever said in this podcast. Hey, it fits with the first. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. I don't think I can do this anymore. All right. Um, but yeah, it's funny because I don't have like a direct... I don't have a direct relationship to renting videos and this movie, but they represent the same thing. They represent an, a kind of um, cinematic awakening where this is this is what comedy is and movies for a really long time was going to video haven and walking through the door on the right hand side of the counter and walking around to the new releases or to the you know the the dramas or the comedies and like with your family and looking for a movie together to try to you know to watch um they're all the same thing you're it's like things you don't do on your own i luckily i suppose didn't discover um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It was like you said. It was it was it was given to me um, from on high, like the Lady of the Lake bestowed Excalibur on on King Arthur. Um, yeah, and it's always it's gonna kind of always be there. And I, you know, maybe one day my kids will give it to their kids if the Earth survives long enough for there to be another generation. So, yeah, your fingers aren't really very crossed, Mario. There's like a hedging to your. It's your cross fingers there. Like, you want to be able to say, like, in the future, like, I didn't cross them that day. I didn't cross them. They yeah. weren't really, they weren't really crossed. <laughs> On November fourth, like, I didn't. They weren't crossed. I knew it was gonna happen all along. Uh, I hope everyone's prepared for the fact that we may not. In November, we may not do another episode in November. Or if we do do an episode, it's just gonna be an hour of us crying together. It'll be me just doing both of our movies for us. Or us reenacting like the Rochambeau episode of South Park where we just kick each other in the balls for an hour. Because that's that's the only just, pleasure left in I'll life. I'll be preparing my exit strategy. That's fine. I know. Not from the world. From the, this jackass country. Yeah. We're not going to rehash that conversation. But I'm on your side now. <sighs> okay. Uh, we're going to be right back, folks. And who knows how long this conversation is going to be. We've been we've been waiting for this one for a long time. Also, uh, uh, yeah, just give us a second. We'll be right back. Let's just do that. Uh, my number eighteen is a film that I saw first as a torrent. It really. Was the first ever movie... Did I know that? And I ever torrented. Weird. And I watched it as a... Was it VCL, I think? Hmm. Like that, that little... Had the little um, traffic cone I as a symbol. And I watched it in the corner of a movie screen. On my... A corner of my computer screen. Because I couldn't expand it. Because I wasn't sure it was coming to theaters in Reno. When I... But I looked. And anticipated. That's sad. I know. It was my first exposure to this. And yet, there, in the ten inches of screen, backed by whatever garbage background I had chose for my desktop, I was entranced. And the first day that this finally came out, two months later... In theaters in Reno, I had to rush off to see it, and I was entranced again. Because no matter how you see this film, on the 
biggest of screens or the smallest of phones. Much like something like a Renoir film. It's mm-hmm. going to grab you by the fucking throat. And pull you in. And tear out each of your goddamn teeth. Mm. And put that teeth back in, in its own certain way. Reconfigure you, reshape you, redo you. It is the 2006 Guillermo del Toro film, Pan's Labyrinth. In a dark time, when hope was bleak, there lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day be reborn. There will be signs that mark her return. There will be secrets that reveal her destiny. There will be a journey weird to think in 14 years the culture's gotten to a point now where if it's like a foreign language film we're like go fuck yourself like you're gonna read subtitles motherfucker yeah yeah, yeah. you're seeing an art house film probably even if it's an english language mm-hmm. art house film you're gonna read subtitles we're not gonna trick you into believing it's not a foreign language film but i do a plot description a pan's labyrinth because guarantee if you read if you read if you've listened to this podcast by this point you you know pan's labyrinth because mm-hmm. we talked about it this is our you said our fourth time i forgot about being um discussed twice in our, our best films of the century it was both of our number three i think yeah it was yeah it was um so we discussed that one time mm-hmm. so technically it's really only our third Meh. yeah Meh. uh yeah i i don't necessarily remember why i was super excited for this film i wasn't a huge Guillermo del Toro guy. Like, Hellboy didn't do anything for me. Mm-hmm. I had seen, you know, I had seen Devil's Backbone, so there's a reason why I was excited for it. But, like, Devil's Backbone was it for me. Like, I hadn't seen Kronos or anything. But, like, you know, we've talked about Devil's Backbone. So mm-hmm. Devil's Backbone made enough of an impression that, like, Pan's Labyrinth built up anticipation. And this is, as I've said, 2006 is the year I start caring about movies. Mm-hmm. Like, starting to see the movies as they come out. Um, Pan's Labyrinth gets released in America I want to say November-ish of 2006 Mm. Um, around that time something yeah it doesn't come out in Reno until like January like right before the Oscars get Mm. announced Um, but the second it came out uh, some way somehow there was a perfect quality torrent that got released Mm mm-hmm and I'm I'm not afraid to say this that I watched it as a torrent because I told myself like no matter how I feel about this movie I'm gonna go see it in theaters because mm-hmm. I I know this from the trailer it needs to be a cinematic experience yeah um, 
so I wasn't expecting much from the tour, but I was like, I was saying, like, I have to see this before the Oscars are announced because I got to do my own little film awards, the awards that matter, <laughs> as me and my friend called them. Because um, every, like, February, we'd have our little awards at the, at the Olive Garden. We're just me and him at an Olive Garden. And it's one like of our Dundies. other friends, you know, just, just the three of us sitting around eating never-ending breadsticks and salad and some garbage pasta and saying hey take it easy the pasta is not great <laughs> the breadsticks are tremendous the yeah. salad's great mm-hmm. uh pepperoncinis man pepperoncinis galore in those fucking salads i'm calling this episode pepperoncinis galore good people will be like what the fuck is going on <laughs> um you know that that's where i got I, I had to face 30 minutes of criticism for my my adam sandler nomination for rain over me um but it's fine. Not that year, but you know. Uh but but I, I expected not to be really captured by this. Um I wanna say is this the same year as Yeah. I, I'd seen Sorry. This is the second movie I torrented. The first movie I torrented was Half Nelson. And I had watched oh, it yeah. right before Talk this. About that, yeah. Um and you know, Half Nelson didn't leave much of an impression on me. I later rented it from a Hollywood video to rewatch it because it never released on video uh, on theaters in Reno. It's got a great Ryan Gosling performance and not a lot else. else. Yeah. Um, but then, so I was like, oh, maybe this entire watching this on a very small VCL, you can't expand to full screen. Uh-huh. I don't know why you couldn't, but for some reason, this torrent site it was LimeWire, I think, at this point. Oh my god, LimeWire. But then I watched this. I started it, and I called like my friend who was kind of a movie. Like I lived with uh, another big movie guy, but he refused. Like one of the guys who did the awards, mm-hmm. he refused to tour and stuff. But I called another guy who's a movie guy, and I was like, "You got to come watch this." We both watched it, and we're watching this like next to each other, like side by side, looking at this ten-inch screen, like ten-inch movie. Mm-hmm on this like 24 or whatever inch screen and we were so engrossed that you know two months later when it finally released that first day when it came out in theaters we both had to go see it and it was just as magical just as magical as that car siren going off right now um and it's because this movie is a perfect synergy between so many different worlds the world of fantasy with the fawn and and the stories the world of a child who lives in between both worlds Mm -hmm. and the world you know in the middle of the francoist war um was it spanish why am i saying spanish civil was it spanish civil war uh the spanish civil war every all three of these stories meld in perfect balance Mm -hmm. and they complement one another they enhance one another they provide perspective on one another um del toro tries to do this again in shape of water fails miserably yeah i mean i'm not gonna shit anymore in shape of water i think it's a forget as i get away from it it's more a forgettable movie than a necessarily terrible movie it bums me out it bums me out being like the becoming but I, I think as time people get away from it, people are like, but really Pan's Labyrinth. And that's what's well, yeah. making me go like, okay, I'm happy Guillermo del Toro got his Oscar. Let's 
pretend that this was a pan's labyrinth like i'm story. cool with the idea that like four out of five directors in a in a sequence of years were mexican and one best director that makes me happy and for a culmination of work too. yeah yeah exactly um but yeah i mean shape of water fucking sucks but it's it's i think it's not um Necessarily, just a. Uh, I, I keep wanting to say the word abortion, but I don't. I'm not going to use that as a, as the term. Um, the it's not it's not like an affront to cinema. It's just bad. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. And, I know what you mean. I guess in I can comparison to the sense of of it is trying to do several different things at once, sure. but it's so discordant and and. And he's already like, done them better. Cacophony. 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 Yeah. I love that word, but I can never say it right. Um, whereas this has this melody yeah like you flow from one note to the next you can flow from um you know the battle sequences up the hill back into the struggle of ophelia with the fawn at moment to moment and everything works together this film whether it's on a 10 inch screen or projected onto the cinema wall is a symphony, mm-hmm. ultimately. And not just because of Javier Navarte's, you know, amazing score. And what a year for scores um, where this goes up against Clinton Ansel's Fountain score. You know, uh, what's what the... Well, Navarte wins, right, this year? Or I don't know. Score, I believe. Um, what do you mean? No, wrong? he doesn't win. Pin... What? I'm talking yelling at my phone. How are you yelling at me? Uh, I mean, the Fountain doesn't get nominated for that year, obviously. What? But, um, didn't? No. That's crazy. Uh, what wins that year you would be happy with? Gustavo Santillano, Santillano for Babel. Ooh, yeah, I like him. Yeah, but... It's his second, though. He didn't need it. Yeah. Um, Should he give it a... Was this nominated? Pans Navarrete was nominated. Okay, good. but he lost to to Babel. Uh, the only other good like there's only two good scores on this list. I like Philip Glass's notes on a scandal score, but like obviously I think that should be an also ran compared to Mansell and yep. Navarrete. But beyond the fact of like that magical score connecting everything together, this movie is a symphony. This movie is a perfect melody. Everything is flowing water in this. It moves you from tide to tide. There are no false turns, no wrong moves, nothing. None. And, and, you know, this is, I want to say this is the highest rated film, uh, maybe actually next week's film too, that lands here because of the fact that it's such, that there's, there's not a real personal, there's a personal deep connection in the sense of like when I'm really attempting to become very serious about film, this is the, one of the first films I'm like, I pursue and find Mm -hmm. like that's the personal connection but this week's film and next uh, by next week possibly two weeks film my number 17 um are just whenever I confront them they're they're they are to me really dedicatedly um perfect films where maybe i have a bigger personal experience with the filmmakers other movies Mm -hmm. but like i look at these and go these are transformative films for the john for the world at large Mm -hmm. for for cinema at large 
I might have a bigger personal experience with something else, but these, uh, yeah, I think that's like a really perfect film because I'm an Olivier guy so <laughs> and a Joan Fontaine guy. It's Rebecca. I'm talking about Rebecca. That's my 17th. Why are you always spoiling <laughs> again? Because I mean, no one's going to listen. Yeah, I'm like, well, yeah, that's all it is to. It's for like, what is it? What is and Mario's? We don't now. care what Tom's is. Um, no. So, so, and having that with somebody else too. Having that with a friend who watched it on such a small screen and then needed to also watch it on a large screen proved that this was universal. That it wasn't necessarily a personal experience as having with it. Like the fountain for several, like I saw fountain, you know, the month before I want to say, um, and I couldn't stop singing its praises felt like a personal experience. Oh yeah. And I thought pants labyrinth might be that again too, but the fact that somebody else was there and then other people would come and see this and be like, no, this is, um, you know, another movie, uh, would do that too, uh, uh, uh-huh. where it would feel like such a a universal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just just kind of confirmed to me that art, that film is art. You know, like like that that pursuit was was a thing. That mm-hmm. um, looking at at film as art was was something that I was in tune with. Because like when I could really grasp grasp onto something, like it, I could pick out the good ones, mm-hmm. um, and and this was, you know, this was the it's film that, that, that set kind of that tone. This and I still say the Fountain. You know, maybe not so many people agree with the Fountain, but they're coming around. Well, it doesn't matter what everyone else thinks because you and me agree with each other, and we will ta- we'll, we will tackle the Fountain in. Um, I feel bad. I never actually got around to this. this yeah, read it. It's article. good. I will read that though. We're going to tackle the fountain, uh, like in. You, give, you gave me this article fullness. how long ago? Oh, <laughs> uh, whenever we, yeah, whenever we did it. Uh, Spirit of the Beehive. Um, and it's funny because I'm, I kind of disagree with some of those things. Like upon watching Pan's Labyrinth a bunch of times to do these episodes that we've been doing. The, the things in the article. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the things that it's definitely an influence. Like Spirit of the Beehive is definitely an influence. But I think it's one of the joys of Pan's Labyrinth is that it's. Um, it wears its influences on its sleeve and it it revels in how it makes use of its influences. You know what I mean? And where also, it's not denying that Spirit of the Beehive is an influence, in reality it's it's accentuating what Spirit of the Beehive might mean to Guillermo del Toro by the way that it it pays homage to that influence. You know what I mean? You know what I and, and seeing that too, like like I, I I know Spirit of the Beehive and the influence, but Spirit of the Beehive seems like a remembrance thing. Like, I, I put Spirit of the Beehive more in, like, the veil of um, Call Me By Your Name in mm. terms of remembering. Mm-hmm. Remembering a time and having this this veil over it. Whereas Pan's Labyrinth feels like this concurrence of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a, a, mo- like a present, like, in the moment. Um, you know, like, in the sense of, like, the My Neighbor Totoro, like, even though Pan's Labyrinth has a much darker, grimmer actualization of the fact of the dark world around you that an adult would have, um, it's still resting in the eyes of a child. So I actually hold Pan's Labyrinth in the same real house as Bicycle Thieves. Pan's Labyrinth and Bicycle Thieves to me are, are very... That's weird. 
Of but not like in a bad way. You're <laughs> like, that's weird in the worst possible way. <laughs> that's weird and I am going to close my computer and I'm going to slowly <laughs> back out of here. And I'm going to hope that because I'm moving slow that you don't see me because your vision's bad like a T-Rex. Um, no, it's, it's weird only because of the nature of both of the films. But I suppose the way that Pan's Labyrinth works is that it is... It works so well because it feels so real. Mm-hmm. It feels like a piece of realism. It feels like all the some might dis- say neorealism. Oh, if all the disparate things that you mentioned before, working so harmoniously together, makes it feel like it's not. Yeah, it doesn't have the. Ma- it's not magic realism, right? Like, it doesn't it, have that magic realism tinge that Spirit of the Beehive has, which I love. Which is one of the things I love most about Pan's Labyrinth, in which I think the violence of this film helps. So most of the time I think violence is used as a kind of crutch, you know what I mean? As a, um, as a, a placeholder instead of emotion, they use violence, you know what I mean, to convey something. But the violence here I think kind of um, drags the magical realism down into a kind of realism. And the violence can be both things. It could be the oft-mentioned, and I, w- I want to hear your Sergio Lopez, because you've been talking up this, like, this is on my list because of Sergio Lopez. Mm-hmm. I want to hear that. But one of the things I've been talking about, we've been talking about the same thing for a long time on this podcast, and one of the things, you talk about him, and I talk about him stabbing a guy in the face with a bottle, is where I kind of knew, it, when, I was, when I saw this movie in theaters, I was like, holy fucking shit, this is a different kind of thing. Because it equals... Some of the terror of Pan. Pan is not a good guy. Even the whole movie, you're like, I want to love this character. You, it's hard, impossible to love him. No, you never do. He is evil as shit. Yeah. And not in the same way that Sergio Lopez's character like, is. Like Capitan Vidal. But he is. It's. It's. He's not comfortable. He is mischievous to the point of like trying to kill you. He's a Loki. He also he's, seems he's, like he's fucking with your life like loki in the in the norse sense not yeah, loki yeah. in the um i forgot the actor's name it doesn't matter tom hiddleston sense yeah. um but ophelia perceives an innocence and a purity to the violence that pan is offering versus what the rest of the world is offering which is i think Something that most movies, or if not all movies, can't comprehend or process or will not look at the world in that way. Where there's two options. Both options might get you killed. But one option offers you a glory, in a way, and one offers you nothing. And see, the way... Actually, I I disagree to a certain extent, because I I, I see the violence... I, I see it as two different forces. The violence of, of Pan being a natural force of being. Mm-hmm. Pan is a violent being because he, that is what he yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a rhythm I, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas Vidal is a force of violence and evil because he revels in it. But it's He also takes joy in his, it. It's not his being. It's uh, not his but purpose. I disagree. I think it is his being. I think that's the whole point is that it's then his nature is violent. And but think, it's a learned nature. It's not like a... Hmm. a I, I see this as like a natural versus 
was it nurtured sort See, of I, I think I think it's two I think it's two so sides you, of the same I think coin. you mostly talk about I think in a lot of ways you talk about yin and yang you know what I mean one kind of informs the other by being in some ways it's opposite I think in this ways they're both the same but one offers that escape that comes at the end of the film and one offers so that's the thing the beauty of this movie is that it operates on two parallels simultaneously she dies in both instances there's no way she lives it's one of the joys of re-watching this movie is that like you know she's never going to survive this but you don't know why and you don't know to what end um it actually reminds me a lot of oh, what was the um the christian petzold movie that we just watched transit, transit. this movie is going to end in the exact same way that you think it's going to end it's just going to stop it's just it can it can the perception of that end can be in in opposite directions so you're going to die at the hands of Vidal you're going to die at the hands of your stepfather he's going to fucking shoot you not even in the stole gut his too. baby Jesus. and it's going to be for nothing you did everything for nothing you know what I mean? Your 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 fantas your flights of fantasy were just to save you for another moment in your mind. But in reality, he was going to get you the whole time because you were afraid for her the whole time because he seemed like he wanted to get her. Or you're going to die and you're going to enter this new realm with with Pan and, and these other beings. You and you're going to commit the ultimate act of sacrifice and exactly. what show. Um, and. For me, that's why the movie is so powerful because it exists not just on both of these levels, because it's it's so the choices are equally dark. You know what I mean? Most movies traffic in one or the other, and if you can't, if both are present, light and dark, light's gonna win, and they're presented as very clear. Um, they're very clear choices. You know what I mean? If you choose the light, that means you're gonna earn one thing. If you choose the dark, you're gonna earn another thing. It's a Star Wars. It's a Star Wars problem. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In this, it's you can choose the light or the dark, but in either instance, you're a kid that's gonna die. Um, and that's so, it's so troubling, but also so thrilling. Um, and it's what makes the fantastical parts, the non-fantastical parts, are equal to the fan, for to the fantastical parts, or to the magical realist parts. You know what I mean? Her encountering the, the 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 you know the skin man with the 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 eyes in his hands and stuff like that is the same as Vidal stabbing a guy in the face or Vidal cutting his getting his the pale man face Doug Jones the pale man right right Doug Jones um it's the same thing and and those are all telegraphed by the fact that like when she meets Pan it's not like oh hello a woodland sprite it's like holy shit this guy is gonna fucking eat. Like, this guy is, doesn't like me. He doesn't seem to care about me. He wants me to fulfill my destiny. But he's totally cool if I die. And he's going to get angry at me like that if I fuck it up. Mm. He's not going to give me a bunch of chances. He's just going to be like, you fucked this up. You're out of here. You weren't supposed to take any fruit. and You took a goddamn grape. You're out. And then she's abandoned until the end. Woof. Love it. Pants of, I, it's one of those movies, and I, I feel like it's like kind of like one of the sub-themes of this podcast is like, could I show my kids this? Because my instinct is like, I want to show them Pan's Labyrinth like 
today. But it's like there's yeah. It's, there's, I know yeah. that they're not gonna see Pan as like a Miyazaki character. As even like the no face. They're not even gonna see it like the no face. They're gonna be like, that guy is gonna haunt me. That guy is not making me feel good. Yeah. Or even that guy has no humor in him. That guy is going going to consume my soul. It's like a it's like a fourteen year old movie. I think I showed it to like a fourteen year old. <sighs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe like a very sophisticated twelve year old. Your your daughter can handle it. Pretty. Soon. I think she'd be. I think she'd dig it for a while, and then and then the pale man would come, and she'd be like, "This is not okay." She's close to that. I think. Yeah. From what you've said, because I haven't talked to her or seen her in a while, I think she's close to that point. She's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's close to that point, I think, of, of digging it. Well, and she's really been into being scared recently, so she's into creepy stuff, so she's, like, into... Um, but she's in the... Like, especially if she's in the theater. Urban, like, this is a real she, theatrical... Into, and into urban legends. Like the movie? No. The Rebecca Gayhart blockbuster Remember hit? Rebecca Gayhart? Until I she remember. killed that kid? What? Remember that she killed a kid? She no. She drove over a, a kid in, like, Haiti? Dominican Republic? Oh. No. And then she, like, nothing happened to her. Oh. I'm going to derail this Pan's Labyrinth topic. I feel like it's actually the perfect end to a Pan's Labyrinth conversation. No, we can't end it here. Conversation. We can't end it here because we have to talk about the elephant in the room that's been here for a while. What is it? It's Sergi Lopez. Go. Um, This is, for me, one of the best. This is the best villain performance, I think. Of the past twenty years, and I think it's the the genesis of of the villain to follow, mm-hmm. which doesn't make sense because obviously Javier Bardem's Anton Chigar he's in production when this movie comes mm-hmm. out, but I look at Capitan Vidal like this guy, he just has this this core to him, you know that this 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 other sense and it, it's sad to me that kind of like paints it for me for the rest of the time like cap like i'm watching happy as like happy as lazaro and i'm sitting there going like i want this again but it's it's impossible to reach Mm -hmm. but it is not just evil like a lot of people say like always just and even i think he himself just mentioned like you know deranged and a psychopath and impossible to defend but there's Mm -hmm. like real motivation to Mm -hmm. it and I always look at this role, and then I look. There it comes. Heath Ledger's Joker. Mm. And I go, like, why did we hail. Heath Ledger's Joker's great, but it is a pantomime of this. Because mm. to me, it's always been that Heath Ledger's Joker has an intent. Obviously, a method to his things, uh, a synthesis, a thesis mm. to it, just like a Vidal. learned thesis or a, a invented or whatever thesis. Like he, there's, there is some ethic, yeah, well, okay. whether self-create or whatnot, to his demonstrations of violence. Mm-hmm. In the same way, Captain Vidal has this, you know, you have the slight hints of in terms of of what. A father is, you know, to a child like this is my child. It's not your brother, well, sort of thing. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's still ethics that are kind of weirdly ill-defined, mm-hmm. but they're ethics that are held in certainty. So to the point where he is a monster, 
but he is a monster that withholds the rules. And Withholds upholds the rules? Uphold, with, with, upholds the rules, yeah. sorry. Um, upholds the rules that he sets for himself. Uh-huh. Sergi Lopez does such a masterful fucking job of not being a villain for the sake of being a villain ever. He is a villain because the rules by which he follows are, are an aberrant, an aberration to the rest of the real moral world. But he is a justifiable villain and is able to display that in the sense that he, you know, Guillermo del Toro creates this character and Sergi Lopez holds up this character to obeying that rule. He's, what, 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 if you're playing Dungeons and Dragons like a fucking nerd, he's like that lawful evil. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he plays by the rules, but he never abstains by it. And every single line of his where he has that, that vitriol in his voice is, is told from that point of view of like, these are how things work and you're in the wrong. Yeah. And that's what's right. what's great about it. What's what's so fucking and this is such an underappreciated performance. Like it blows my mind this performance just I still feel goes really unrecognized I in think, the Pantheon. I think in if this movie was made now, it would be a Roma situation. Where it would get a lot of nominations, not just like the token ones that it got. Yeah. But it would get like it would get like Six or seven nominations for various things, including a supporting act, a supporting act. Yeah. Because um, I, I, th- I just think this sets the tone for what you would see to come. Well, like Matthew, like I think, uh, like I don't know. It, like obviously, a lot of things are inspirations, probably. But you look at Matthew McConaughey and Killer Joe, and a lot of the kind of same tenements he follows, um, tenets he follows, I should say, are crafted from this playbook. Mm. Um, well, I think there's a direct comparison to be made. What, what, what is your opinion just on? Oh, the I love performance? it. Okay. I mean, and it, it, it's the thing that holds. Tell me if I'm um, overstepping. No, because I think it's the thing that defines the nature of what the movie is. So I think there's a direct there's a direct relationship. I think between and it plays off film. really well off of Avana uh, Bakaro's performance. Yeah, yeah. She plays directly to her own rules as well, which is insane for a 12 year old girl to be to have that presence of mind. We've talked about Schindler's List a lot of times in this movie, and maybe on. Maybe the November episode that we were talking about off air is just us convening on Thursday to talk about Schindler's List. Well, drunk. Yeah, well, I'm intoxicated. Yeah, we'll Biden see. wins. We'll give you a Schindler's List episode because we have to convey our. All right. We have to drop. We'll, we'll make that promise. If Biden wins, our. No, I think in either case. No, I'm not doing. I'm not doing Schindler's List if Biden loses. That no, that's too real. <laughs> Um, okay, but what I'm saying is that there's a direct relationship, I think, between the Eamon Goth character and between um, Captain Vidal, in the sense that both seem to be to to be reveling in to be reveling in cruelty. It's gonna go in my completed books pile. While I think Goth is not Goth seems not real. Mm-hmm. Goth seems like an amalgam of um, ideas and fears and and a plot, stories. A plot construction, too. right? But a plot construction that kind of arrives on the history. On, yeah, like some kind of collective, unconscious, um, 
presumption of what it what what that person would be like. He represents Nazism. Where Vidal seems more real. He seems more substantial. He seems more birthed out of not so much like um like like a Nietzsche man creating God type of thing or man killing God type of thing, but a uh, like an, uh, an earthy woodsiness, you know he, what I mean? He Where seems he, he, he seems like a legitimate Francoist military leader. So the father thing you mentioned before, the you know, is I think really interesting because I think he represents not so much Ophelia's father as much as he represents like Spain's father, like the state, like a state exactly. And its its intensity is. And I think it's one of the things that a lot of parents, I think, are grappling with now, If depending on like where you're leading politically, is how much... I don't much, know what that would mean. Right. Is how much you... you See discarded tissue. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a podcast over there. Um, how much do you grapple with this in front of your kids and stuff like that? Do your kids need to realize what it means to be uh, a, a fan? And I'm going to say a fan of one person versus um, understanding the representational value of another person. Um, there's no other way for Vidal. You know what I mean? There's only there's only this way. And as your that's father... Gold, sir. Thanks. Right. No, as, that's, I'm not even joking. Like That's a connection I haven't made like in modernity. But I think, it's, I think to, to the movie, I think to what I was saying before, is that Pan offers the same way. There's no other way. You cannot deviate from mm. the nature of the prophecy or the nature of your fate. It is it is as thus to say something really stupid. You know what I mean? Like, you will go there. You will get the thing. You will not take a grape. And if you do, you are left alone to die not ever knowing that you are going to accomplish your fate. You know what I mean? That your sacrifice will be valued in the way that it's sacrificed. Does she know as she's lying there on the ground her ultimate fate? I don't know. And I think that's one of the beauties of the movie is that it's so ambiguous. And that's but something the things I never... that are not ambiguous are the rules. Mm-hmm. And that is the Francoist state and that is also Pan. It's so weird but like also great. But also, I, I guess, which makes the ending more beautiful, maybe this is an overreach, is the fact that... There's no overreaching here. Maybe Ophelia, no matter what the end is, like, she goes back to the underworld to become the Princess Moina, or she, she dies and that's the end, um, she made the freedom of choice. Mm, she broke, maybe. She broke away from both of those rules. You know, like, she... Because she thought one was over. Yeah. Um, but regardless, as she flew in the face of both of them mm-hmm. to make her own step in what she felt was right, mm-hmm. which is like the birth of new life mm-hmm. and the birth of new potential. Mm-hmm. Like that's what matters to her the most in the end is just her brother. Yeah. Um, you know, new life, new hope, new potential. And it's a breakaway from, I don't know, maybe does Pan represent like the, the traditionalist kind of like state of Spain versus like that. Franco estate, which is strongly real because it's fucking Guillermo del Toro. And I mean, Guillermo del Toro was just is heavy. Like, if there's somebody that knows, like, Spain at this time, it's, it's that dude. And he would do the same kind of themes in Hellboy, too. 
where it was it was like Hellboy as well or Hellboy Golden Army? The Golden Army. Okay. So I uh, yeah, Hellboy two. Um <laughs> where it, you know, in, it's funny to draw parallels here, but I think Hellboy two is in a lot of ways like a perfected aesthetic image of some of the things that he wanted he was doing in Pan's Labyrinth, but he did it like just need more Clancy Brown. Yeah. Um yeah, you can always use more Clancy Brown. Even if we titled this episode after Clancy Brown. But like aesthetically, Hellboy Two is much more um horrifying and, 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 and fully realized than Pan's Labyrinth is. Pan's Labyrinth gave him the freedom to make Hellboy Two. Like the like the Archangel there scene is unmatched in Del Toro's like I've canon. literally seen Hellboy Golden Army once. Oh, you should watch it again. Because there's stuff that's happening in there that's got nothing to do with Hellboy. I hate which is... the original Hellboy, so that's why I can't... Well, the original Hellboy is so weak and, like... But it's way better than the David Harbour Hellboy. Let's not get mistaken. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's, I just, not, let's, I just, let's not go crazy. I just think it's kind of just a comic book movie. He's so... He... He... Um, he... It feels studio. It's one of the things that it's one of the things that they mentioned on, in the conversation that the Ringer people were having about Mulan last week that we I may have mentioned next week, which is happening next week also. <laughs> yeah, eat fucking shit, Christopher Nolan. Figure this <laughs> podcast out and then make a movie about that. We're can fucking we put, with time. Can now. we put some sound over us talking so nobody can understand us? We make do 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 Yeah, we'll do some we'll do some some hands over things. Um. No, just Philip Glass. Let's put some Philip. That's our. Oh, that's our guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could do it. Um, it doesn't matter. I mean, I just think Hellboy Two is aesthetically like a, a real achievement because he felt this freedom because Pan's Labyrinth was so well received. That but but how, how do you mean? How do you mean that like it captures that, that voice of it? So there's, he goes. He allows himself to spend more time in horror in Hellboy 2 that I think he would have done in Pan's Labyrinth if I think he thought he could get away with it. Um, so the in, pa- in the sense of the Francoist, like... Right. So aspects. there's there's the the Pale Man is one thing. But the other thing is a frog. You know what I mean? But in Hellboy 2, there's all this stuff that has no real basis in, like, the Hellboy canon, but is in, perfectly in line with the Del Toro canon. So in character design, in... Um, production design. If he had more money, if he had the money he had to make Hellboy 2 that he had to make Pan's Labyrinth, I think he probably would have done some of that stuff. But I think the genius of Pan's Labyrinth is, which you mentioned before, is that he had, like, you know, I don't know what the exact budget of Pan's Labyrinth is, but he was working on, I think a regular independent film budget and he made something work, which is I think why he did the practical effects, you know, because he would do in Shape of Water, he would do a lot of CGI stuff. He would do some practical effects too, but I think it suffers from the, I think it suffers from the modern Disney remake of the animated films where there's just so many sets, it never feels real. He like hues so closely to like the unreality of it that it also like the movie in and of itself feels unreal despite what Richard Jenkins and Sally Hawkins are really trying to do in the movie um it's just like it, those two films are are genius films and I think one kind of informs the other and I think it's odd that a movie that is a classic all-time great movie 
informs the nature of a comic book movie sequel. No. But the thing that that comic book movie sequel is never going to have is a Vidal character. It's also never going to have an Ophelia. It's also never going to have a moral code or an ethic to it, which Pan's Labyrinth is all ethics and, like, puppets. So close this. I have a question for you. Do you know, Torah has two upcoming projects that are in production or in post-production, but both are led by actors you hate. Is Jason Clark one of them? So the first one has Ewan McGregor in Pinocchio. Okay. The second one has Bradley Cooper in Nightmare Alley. <sighs> That's which tough. One, which one makes you more angry? I think the Bradley Cooper one. And I think I'm, I'm, it's a reflective anger based on the fact that Bradley Cooper is the main character or the second main character in this Paul Thomas Anderson movie, too. Ewan McGregor is, is just a cricket. It's, a, it's an animated film. So. Here's the thing. I don't hate Ewan McGregor as an actor or a person. I think Ewan McGregor has been bad for, like, seven years here. Um, and that's in a, as a director in American Pastoral. And that's as an actor in... Things such as Doctor Sleep, where he fucking stinks in it. Where there's no pressure for him to be good, he just is terrible. The Bradley Cooper thing bums me out. I was actually cool with Bradley Cooper like going into the Ben Affleck director's chair and maybe making like a superhero movie that I wasn't gonna have to see. But I'm gonna go see both of those movies. I'm gonna have to watch two Bradley Cooper movies probably in 2021. What was your one? The Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Oh, uh, right. That's tough, Mario. That's tough. That's really tough. Yeah, every time I see Bradley Cooper, I'm like, I wish I didn't have to see Bradley Cooper. Me too. Although, I mean, it's funny that by the end of that 2000, what, 19 Oscars, I was rooting for him to win Best Actor over... Um, who Oldman? Winning? Yeah, Gary Oldman. Yeah. Gary stunk. I was so just like, I'll take anybody, including Bradley Cooper, over Gary Oldman in Darkest Hour. And I could convince No, that wasn't. That wasn't that. I think what it was. It? I think it was, yeah. Oh, no, no. Wait. No, no. That can't no, be right. Gary Oldman went over. 2018. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he went over. Rami Malik. Rami Malik, yes. Which makes more sense because Rami Malik's never done anything worthwhile in his life. I mean, I think both of us were assuming. Outside of Until Dawn. I think both of us were assuming that. Daniel Day-Lewis was going to end up winning that 2017 Oscar for Phantom Thread. Like, even even though the, like everything said that he wasn't going to, I think we were both just like, well, yeah, he's clearly going to win this. We both saw Phantom Thread. No, I, I, I remember I thought Daniel Kaluuya was going to pull it out. Oh, did you? Yeah. I just thought it was going to win Best Picture. but I thought Daniel Kaluuya was going to pull out the actor. That'd be yeah. cool. But he's black. They yeah, all... he, only, he only do that once every ten <laughs> yeah, years. Yeah, come on. And he's not Denzel Washington. Who's also, also nominated? Who's also year. nominated that year? Yeah, <laughs> for Roman J. Israel. Remember that movie? Nobody ever said. Oh man. Oh man. If you want to talk about movies we don't remember, you can tweet us at Film Pivotal. Uh, or you can send us an email at uh, pivotalfilmpodcast@gmail.com, or you can go to our website. Um, remember when they could have gave William Defoe an actor award last year? Yeah, or a couple years ago. 
or any number of years forever. Remember where they could have given Ethan Hawke an Oscar and then decided not to nominate him? Remember that? Remember that? And they gave it to... Was that last year? No, that was 18. 18, yeah. yeah. Do you remember that? Bums me out. I, I try to forget. What happened to First Reformed is like the saddest thing that ever happened to movies. They got one nomination, right? Yeah, for Paul Schrader. And he was like in the odds. You know, I mean, we know when you if you looked up the odds for like who was going to win what, he was like number five in best original screenplay. Oh, but me like Adam McKay. Sure, of course. And Green Book won. Hmm. I have like Roma, which would have been like. Well, we talked about it at the time, not on the air because we didn't have a podcast back then. But the idea that oh, we did, we have a podcast. We back did then. have a podcast. We did. Yeah. The idea that like <laughs> giving it to Rome. We, we reviewed Roma on this podcast. Giving it to we yeah, also we reviewed First Reformed on the podcast. First Reformed is like our second movie review. Yeah, that's true. I think it's like sorry to bother you. And then First, First Reformed, Reformed yeah. yeah. Giving it to Roma would have been one of those kind of washes where you've been like, okay, yeah, I was like that's fine. Like it should have been First Reformed, but. Fine. It also should have been like seven other movies that year. But they gave it to Green Book. Like, you look at this, you just you cut out so many people. Like, get rid of Rami Malik, get rid of Christian Bale, get rid of Bradley Cooper, get rid of Viggo Mortensen, leave William Dafoe, throw in Ethan Hawke, and just call it a two horse race. The best two horses ever. We should buy two horses and name them William Dafoe and Ethan Hawke and race them in the next Kentucky Derby. That's true. Um, I don't even know what we're doing here anymore. Uh, we have a podcast, talking, I think. You're talking about our Gmail account. Go to our Gmail. Go to our website, pivotalfilm.com, where you can see our a bunch Gmail of stuff. Our Gmail account is what? I said it. I, I said it. Pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Oh, um, whatever. I don't care. Uh, something's going to happen in October. We're going to see some movies. Oh, it's not October. What the heck is it? It's the 10th? Uh, well, no. It's the 9th currently. This is coming out on the 12th. We've already recorded the 19th episode. The 26th episode... I mean, this is recorded second. We'll, we talked about this earlier, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about um, the devil. Devil all the time? Yeah, devil all the time. And other stuff. And then, by that, then we're in October. We've recorded two of the three episodes left for September. Mario, I really don't know what's happening anymore. Me either. I don't know where we are. I don't know what day it is. I, what, uh, what day is it? Uh, almost Thursday. That's weird. Oh, yeah, we're getting very close to Thursday. So, we'll see you people in, uh, whenever we see you, a week, two weeks, a month, who knows? Watch movies. We might go blind. It might be a real Oedipus situation. Except I'm not going to fuck my mouth. Drink a beer. <laughs> see a movie. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>